and welcome to the Abby Norman Podcast. I am your host, Aaliyah. And I am Colin Bourne. And this is the 17th episode of the Abby Normal Podcast. What are we going to talk about today? I had the great idea to talk about local true crime cases. Because mm-hmm. we, you know, we've dabbled a little bit here and there with the true crime trivia and the horror stories based off of true crime stories. Yes, we have. And I thought it would be fun if we talked about more local cases, especially ones that people may not really know about. Especially one of which that we're going to talk about today. I was going to say, this one's actually pretty big, where we are. It's well, very well known. I wouldn't say it is, because a lot of people don't know about it. Especially outside of Rochester. But we're going to get into that in a minute. So, yeah. I'm trying to think. What do we want to go into? Do we want to like announce anything before we jump into this? I was going to say, I don't really have anything announced unless you got something that's happening or not. Um, as far as everything else with the podcast goes, I know we were definitely going to be doing a live stream soon, mm-hmm. doing Halloween Arts and Crafts. I know we mentioned that a couple weeks ago in the last episode, and I know some of you probably have been waiting for the Facebook posts and things. We're still trying to get things going, especially like getting a Instagram account together and things like that. So yeah. that's still in the works, and I feel like... Once we get the Instagram account going up, then we'll announce the craft live stream. But anyway. <laughs> the craft. Fine. Let's just get on with the episode, please. Okay. And I do want to address first before... No, no, this is important, Colin, so don't sit there like that and slump at me. You're going to take a while. No, this case tackles a very sensitive topic. So I just want to forewarn you guys if... You, I mean, if you're into true crime, that's cool. However, if you're not into the cases that involves harm to young children or sexual harm to young children, I do advise you to proceed with caution if you still want to listen to the story. Mm-hmm. But it does need to be addressed because it's imperative to the case. And so I can't, pretty... I can't just gloss over it. So you're probably going to cry during this episode, but... That's why I am in... I'm wearing what I'm wearing now. I'm in my comfy clothes because I need to try to feel some sort of whimsy in this really dark story we're about to get into. Okay. So the case we're going to be talking about today is the Alphabet Murders of Rochester, New York. Now, what it is, it's an all, it's an unsolved case that involves the deaths of three girls that took place between 1971 and 1973. Colin, do you know anything much about this case? Well... Except for what my parents used to tell me about this uh, alphabet killer when I was a kid. You know, because I would ask them stuff like this. Because I was a weird kid, you know, asking about, like, you know, ghosts and, you know, killer stuff and everything. And they would actually mention about the alphabet killer and just about how it was pretty scary at the time. Yeah. You know, especially living around a time when a serial killer would be around in Rochester. Yeah. And there yeah. wasn't and there wasn't that many, so he was like kind of like the only ones. Well, in one of the well, well known. In ones. one of the articles I read about this case, they even said that this case kind of rocked the way parents their children have some sort of sense of freedom because before all this happened, it was fine to send your child. He's fine. Let him play. Well, yeah, but you can hear that in the background. So anyway, the tragic murders of three little girls. Now, mm. each of these cases has some similarities to them, especially not only... The, the, the thing that makes this an alphabet killer, also known as the double initial murders, 
is the fact that each victim had double initials. So Carmen Cologne was CC. She was found in Churchville. Mm-hmm. I know Churchville. Which, which, which town's name starts with C. That's where and I that, got my that, license. I know, but that was the common theme in these cases. The victims had double initials and were found in towns that shared an initial with their names. Mm-hmm. Another thing that they had in common was the same age group. The girls' range, like their age ranges were between like 10 to 11. So they're very young. So he liked little girls. Whoever did this, yeah, definitely targeted little girls. That's disgusting. And, I mean, they all came from Catholic families, poor neighborhoods, and they all struggled in school and dealt with bullying in one way or another. So let's go into, like, the victims and their murders. I try to get as much information about each victim, but there's really not a whole lot to go by. Mm-hmm. The only thing I can figure out about Carmen was... She was originally born in Puerto Rico in 1961, and she and her family moved to Rochester into one of the poor neighborhoods. I couldn't exactly figure out which neighborhood it was she was living in, but mm-hmm. it's it's they all they all seem to have been living in or abducted from the same area in downtown Rochester, mm. which is just slightly north of the south what what is now the South Wedge area. Yes. So, you know, people said about Carmen, she was a, you know, lovely little girl with a nice smile, and she was described as, you know, a good kid who lived with her grandparents. Carmen struggled in school and had problems with bullying, but was capable of defending herself. But unfortunately, on November 16th, 1971, Carmen ran an errand for her grandmother to pick up a prescription from the local drugstore on West Main Street. Witnesses would later inform police that she seemed to be in a hurry at the store, and when she was told that her prescription was not ready yet, she said, quote, I gotta go, I gotta go. So she seemed a bit in a rush, which people thought was a bit strange. Especially considering the fact that, you know, these were reports that were coming in after she had disappeared. And more witnesses reported seeing her get into a car that seemed to be waiting for her outside of the store. So it was very possible that whoever did this to Carmen was probably someone she knew. Which, I'm going to get a little bit more into the theories about that later when we get into the investigation. So at 7.50pm, she was reported missing by her family to the Rochester Police Department. Eyewitnesses saw a girl matching Carmen's description later that day. So can't remember exactly what the time it was, but witnesses would start reporting seeing a girl who looked like Carmen running alongside I-490, naked from the waist down. Ew. Sorry. It's just... She's running up and down the side... Running up and down the side of the expressway, trying to flag people down. Eventually, a car did pull over and grab Carmen, dragged her into the car. And that was the last she was seen alive. Oh, shit. Yeah. And this is the thing that baffles me about this case, is the amount of witness reports that have claimed to see some man, like, physically grab these girls and, like, drag them into the car. And there was no and, justice to it. Well, no. What, what kills me is, like, it's it's that bystander's guilt. Or not guilt. But it's like, if you, if you see something happen that doesn't look right, say something. Yeah, that's what I was saying. Well, no, don't don't wait till after the fact. Like, call it in right away. Like, if you see a girl who's half naked in, like, the freezing Rochester area, like, because, like I said, this was in November. 
it's freezing that time of year. Like, temperatures are, like, below 50. It's freezing outside. Mm-hmm. If you see a girl running half naked down the expressway, try to help or at least call for help. But then again, back in the day, 1970s, people didn't have a lot of mobile phones, but you could at least, like, pull off to the nearest exit, call 911. You know what I'm saying? I mean, anyway, I digress. <clears throat> so two days later, Carmen's body was found in the Churchville area by two young boys who almost mistook her body for a mannequin, which reminds me a lot of the Black Dahlia case. That seems to be how, not just that case in particular, but most cases, like when they find a dead body, they mostly mistake it for a mannequin mm-hmm. or like a doll. So investigators determined that Carmen had been raped and was murdered by strangulation. She appeared to have scratch marks on her body and her jacket had been found 300 yards from where her body was discovered and her pants were found near the exit of I-490 where she was last seen alive. Hmm. The autopsy report shows that Carmen had a had fractures to her skull and vertebrae that were I think the term is perimortem is when injuries are caused to the body prior to death mm-hmm. and then postmortem is after death. Yeah. So the Rochester Police Department interviewed several potential suspects, but never did make a formal arrest for Carmen's murder. And it was highly believed for a while that Carmen's uncle, Miguel Colon, had something to do with Carmen's death. But unfortunately, he would later move to Puerto Rico. And after some domestic disputes, which I'll get into a little little later when I go over the suspect list, there was a domestic dispute and followed in his suicide. So he... Unfortunately, he's no longer alive to be able to give any sort of confession as to what happened to Carmen that day, if he knew anything about what happened to Carmen that day. So we, and like I said, it's it's still an unsolved case, so we still don't know what really happened to these girls. So that was, that's Carmen's story. So she was essentially the first of these murders to occur, and then another murder wouldn't occur for another two years. And the next victim would be Wanda Wachowski. Wanda Wachowitz. 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 Sorry, I have to say it a few times just so it can settle in. Wachowitz. She was an 11-year-old girl from Rochester area who was known to be a redheaded tomboy with good street smarts, according to her teachers. Because hmm. police investigated her teachers and they, you know, asked her, like, was there anybody that Wanda would know, would just, like, real- willingly get into a car with? And they're like, oh, no, she's, like, a really good smart kid she wouldn't she wouldn't you know get into a car with anybody she was also known in the papers after her disappearance as the little redhead from avenue d which i think is a weird title to give somebody redhead from avenue d the redhead from avenue d sounds like a movie it just sounds i don't know like for papers i don't get it like i don't know i mean she has a name we i just said it like five times wanda walkowitz yeah, but when they look at her, they notice that she's a redhead. So that's the, only, that, thing that, that they, that's, that's that's the only thing that they take away from this. So so anyway, moving on. Hmm. Uh, Wanda and her family lived in an upper apartment on Avenue D. On April 2nd, 1973, Wanda went to a local grocery store to pick up some things for her mother. Now, the contents of what she bought are all over the place. Like, in some accounts, she bought... Milk, bread, cigarettes, and diapers. In other accounts, she bought tuna, cupcakes, diapers, and Again. other like just some others. Well, she had a 
her younger sister was an infant. I know. Hence the diapers. So she brought two things of diapers. But I could believe the cupcakes because she was abducted the day before her other sister, Rita's birthday. And there's a direct quote from Rita expressing her thoughts on her sister's disappearance, which I'll get into in a minute. You know, she paid for these items and then she left. As she left, Wanda was seen by witnesses heading down Conkey Road. Do you know where Conkey Road is? I feel like we've been... Conkey sounds familiar. I feel like we've walked through that area I was before. Say, I've been through a lot of roads in Rochester, a lot mm-hmm. of areas, so I think Conkey, isn't that like in the city? Yeah. They're, they were all abducted from like the inner city area. Like, is Conkey is in the South Wedge area, or where is that? I have no idea where that is. Well, I'll, I'll check it out after this episode. So. Okay. So, she was heading down Conkey Road and appeared to have been struggling with her bags. Reports also claim that a Brown slash beige car pulled up next to Wanda. Uh, when she didn't return by 8 p.m. that day, her mother reported her missing. There's a lot of cases, or not cases, but there were a lot of reports that gave different testimonies as to Wanda's whereabouts after she left the um, grocery store. The common thing was that she seemed to be struggling with her bags and then a brown beige car, like she was talking to the driver of the car, it seemed like, and... Yeah, it just, I just don't know what to make of this. But other reports say that a man with a brown beige car was trying to drag her into this vehicle. Huh. Which is weird. And again, it's that bystander thing. Don't be a bystander. Say something. Do something. Like, come on, people. Anyway. Law enforcement launched an immediate search for Wanda. They canvassed three different places. Her home, the store... And the Genesee River where she frequently played. Now, it's said in some accounts that they searched as far as several square miles from each location to try to get a good sense of where Wanda might be. But mm-hmm. they never, you know, found her in those areas. And her body was unfortunately discovered the next day at the Aronaquate Bay area in Webster. Now, this is the thing that struck me as odd. Because I was like, Aronaquate Bay... That's in Irondequoit, but it's actually the section of the Genesee. I think it's the Genesee River, but it's a section of a river or creek that runs through Rochester when it gets just close to Lake Ontario. And there's one side of the river is the Irondequoit side, and the other side of the river is the Webster side. So mm-hmm. she was found over on the Webster side of the Irondequoit Bay, Bay Area. And we've been there before. Yeah, I think so, yeah. But that, that section of the bay stretches for miles down that river. So she could have been found anywhere over there. Mm. Her body was fully clothed and it was positioned... The positioning of her body indicated that she was most likely thrown from a moving vehicle. Now, we're going to get into that in a minute because... Theories. Theories. Anyway. So... Similar to Carmen's case, Wanda was sexually assaulted and strangled. But, unlike Carmen, autopsy reports show that custard was found in her stomach. Meaning, her killer probably fed her before she died. Hmm. Hmm. I mean, we'll get into that in a minute. DNA evidence was also found on her body, which means semen was found, pubic hair was found, along with white cat hairs... And Wanda's family didn't own a pet, nor did anybody else that they know, for that matter. And another thing about the custard, 
Wanda's mother claimed that that was something that was never really in their house. It wasn't something that Wanda typically ate, nor did anybody else that they knew. So where the custard came from was most likely a killer. And an anonymous hotline was established after the discovery of Wanda's body, and a reward was posted to encourage witnesses to come forward for with information. Which I don't know if I missed this somewhere, but with Carmen with Carmen and Wanda's investigations, local newspapers, which were the Times Union and Democrat Chronicle, they had posted cash rewards to encourage or entice people to come forward with more information in hopes of making an official arrest to, you know, convict the people responsible, but unfortunately not much came from this. But one eyewitness did come forward claiming to have seen Wanda standing next to a brown car talking to the driver. Another witness claimed that they saw a man forcing a redhead kid into a car between 5.30 to 6 p.m. the day Wanda disappeared, which is like I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Right? Two girls also informed police about a man in a Ford LTD attempting to lure them in. Now, that's always been my fear, my biggest fear as a kid. Like, I never played outside because I was always afraid if I was just playing on a sidewalk, some car was going to pull up and try to get me to get in the car. Hmm. But yeah, that's just me. Well, that never happened to me either, so I was very fortunate, so... Well, no, I've always had that fear. You never had that fear that you were going to get abducted and never see your family again? No, because I never thought of it. I'm glad it never happened, so, yeah. It's always been a fear of mine. Well, when you... I mean, to this day, when you think about sex trafficking stories, like, you still worry about that as an adult. (sighs) All right, what I was going to say was, when you live out in the country growing up as a kid... You don't really think about a lot of stuff like that because out in the sticks, there's not a lot of that going on. It was a lot more peaceful, so. Yeah. So we were very fortunate. Okay, country bumpkin. (laughs) Wanda's sister Rita once said, recalling that day, quote, They took her the day before my birthday, and I turned 10 when they found her. Like, how sad is that? And I feel it's weird when she said they took her that day. Like, who's they? It was one person, not they, but... I do have a theory about that. And they never explore this possible theory. Because remember how I said her body was positioned in a way that made it seem like she was thrown from a moving vehicle? Mm Mm-hmm. How does one person throw a child from their car while driving at the same time? There had to be another person. Exactly. I'm just saying it's, it's a possibility that there was probably more than one person involved. But I digress. So, shortly after Wanda's disappearance and murder, Michelle, I'm going to butcher this last name, and I'm so sorry, Mainza? Let me see. Where is it Mainza? at? M-A-E-N-Z-A. Mainza. Mainza? Just say Mainza. It's not, who cares? Uh, I care. You're I don't f- want to be rude. You're fine. I know don't you're, touch me either. I know you're tired and whatever, but please be somewhat respectful. I am respectful. These are That's little girls to... whose lives were taken too soon. Show some fucking respect. I didn't say anything wrong. I'm just saying I think Maison, Mienza, Mienza is fine. So you think it's Michelle Mienza? Well, let's go with Michelle. <sighs> so Michelle was a shy 11-year-old girl. 
She went missing on November 26, 1973, and this is the third victim of the alphabet killer. And to our knowledge so far, this is probably the final victim of mm. the Rochester alphabet killers mm. or murders. Yeah. So at 3.30 that day, classmates claimed to have seen Michelle walking alone to a shopping plaza and she was going there to pick up her mother's mm. purse. She ran into her uncle while she was at the shopping plaza and he offered to give her a ride home, mm. which she declined and left. And to this, you know, to this day, I think, I, I don't know if the uncle was still alive, but from what I re- read, a lot of family members claim that this was a day that would haunt him for the rest of his life. And it's it's one of those things I was, you know, that's bystander's remorse right there. Yeah. Is, is knowing you're the last person to have seen that person alive in some way. You know, aside from the killer, that is. Yeah. Knowing that you could have done something to have changed things and they still would be alive today. Sorry if you can hear his squeaks. He's got to play with stuff while we do this podcast. So, 10 minutes after she leaves her uncle at the store, um, witnesses said that they saw Michelle sitting in the passenger seat of another beige tan car on Ackerman Street. Do you know where Ackerman Street is? Ackerman. Um, Try to remember. I'm asking Colin because I call him Mr. Rochester because he's been practically everywhere in Rochester. I mean, I know where every... I've been to a lot of places here in Rochester, but it's kind of hard to put names on them, so... Yeah, but yeah. you also know a lot of people here, too. True. Anyway. True story. She was seen in a car going on Ackerman Street, and then it turned onto Webster Avenue. Mm-hmm. Around 5.30 p.m. that day, a motorist saw a man with that same car and appeared to be dealing with a flat tire. And this was alongside Route 350. Mm-hmm. That's in Walworth, where this motorist saw this guy. This witness also claimed that a young girl who looked like Michelle was in the car and appeared to be very upset or crying about something. Yeah. Which is very unsettling to me. Hmm. It's like, I would want to know what's up. Why is she crying? Why is she upset? Why are you crying, girl? No, I'm like, like something doesn't seem right, right. here. Yeah. <laughs> so the man in question began to shield the witness witness's view of the girl and his license plate. Which is still super suspicious. The motorist says that the man was staring at him in a very menacing way, it seemed. And that he started to approach the motorist with his fist raised, which then kind of led the motorist to drive off. But, but, not without getting a partial license plate number. So good for you, sir. I gotta applaud you for that. So, unfortunately, though, this wouldn't exactly help Michelle because her body was found two days later in Mason, Mason, New York. Her body was like Wanda, found fully clothed and laying, laying face down. Autopsy reports show that Michelle, like the others, was sexually assaulted and strangled and she had very extensive blunt force trauma to her body. White cat hair was also found on Michelle's body. Now this is this this and the this and the stomach contents would be the two things that separate not the two things. There's other things that separate Wanda and Michelle's case from Carmen's case, which is why there's a theory that the same person probably didn't commit all three murders and that it's possible that Carmen's case or murder is a 
separate individual from the other two. Yeah. Investigators were able to recover a partial palm print on Michelle's neck, and leaves that were clutched in her hand determined that she was possibly killed nearby the same location where she was abducted from. So yeah, like Wanda, she was fed before she was murdered. This confirmed a witness statement that they saw Michelle with a Caucasian male with dark hair at a hamburger stand in Penfield around 4.30 p.m. So those are the three cases. Those are the three girls. That's how they died. Now, a couple of things I didn't really get into a little bit before we go into the investigation was, like I said, Carmen's, while it was similar in nature to how she died and the double initial connection, it had a lot of differences from the other two. For one, there's no reports of anything found in her stomach contents as far as, like, food and what she could have possibly done in her final moments and unlike the other two she was the only one found partially nude whereas the other two were found fully clothed Hmm. and then based on how her body was positioned it looked like she was placed there whereas the other two had appeared to have just been thrown in those locations it's a detached way of just disposing you know the bodies And then there's lack of the cat hair, there's lack of DNA evidence to, like the other two, they had like DNA evidence of their assailant or attacker on their bodies and whole shebang. There's just a lot of differences between Carmen and the other two that investigators, which I'm going to get into right now, try to deduce the fact that one person probably didn't commit this. So let's jump right into that. Okay. So... FBI profiler Robert Ressler, my dude, the guy who coined the term serial killer, like we talked about in the true crime trivia, Mm -hmm. he was brought in with experts to help local authorities try to figure out who it is exactly that they're looking for. Like build a profile, get inside the mind of the murderer, and try to figure out who it was that could have done it. He doesn't believe, or didn't believe, that one person killed all three girls. Based on the evidence that was collected and different methods and how both Carmen and the other two were found. But another difference I forgot to mention. Although all three were strangled, Carmen was manually strangled. And Wanda and Michelle were strangled strangled with a ligature, which could have been a belt or a rope or some kind of item. So that's pretty interesting to think about. So, Ressler worked with profilers to develop a behavioral profile of the killer or killers. Experts concluded that Carmen's killer acted on a high level of anger and was more brutal than Wanda and Michelle. Carmen's case was missing certain components to connect her to the other murders, like I mentioned earlier. Like I said, she wasn't fed before her murder. She was found partially nude. She was manually strangled, whereas Wanda and Michelle were strangled with ligatures. There was no white hat, white cat hair present. Yeah. And I kind of made a little diagram of the different profiles between Carmen's killer and Wanda and Michelle's killer. So under Carmen's killer, they believed that, well, wrestler believed that the killer was somebody Carmen knew was most likely between the age group of 25 to 30 years old at the time of her murder, was of low to average intelligence, was abusing alcohol or certain substances, and had an explosive temper. 
Mm. Now, compared to Wanda and Michelle's killer profile, Ressler believed that this person had average intelligence, may have been arrested for less, lesser sexual offenses, not organized in his abductions, murders, and the disposal of her of the disposals of their bodies. So this is what they would call a disorganized killer. Hmm. Whereas organized killers, like they plan out their abductions, they know how they're going to go about their murders, and they plan everything ahead to the last detail. Whereas disorganizers, like they act on a completely impulsive, like a spree, essentially. So that was what they were conclusive in their investigations, you know, and helping authorities try to figure out who could have, who the, who to look for exactly. Yeah. So now that we know what to look for, I'm going to jump right into the suspects list. This is where it gets interesting. Okay. So first we have Miguel Colon, like we mentioned. He was Carmen's uncle. So Miguel Colon was Carmen's uncle. He was like the number one suspect in her murder. Weeks before Carmen's disappearance, however, it is believed that Miguel had bought a car closely resembling the one Carmen was seen getting into on the I-490 incident. Mm-hmm. After Carmen's body was found, police did search the car, any potential evidence to be found, and only to find that the entire car, meaning the interior, exterior, and trunk, were heavily cleaned with chemical substances. This guy cleaned the fuck out of his car. Mm. Okay. So four days after Carmen's death, Miguel went back to Puerto Rico. He was questioned by investigators in March of 1972. He was unable to provide an alibi, and there was a strong... There was strong circumstantial evidence against him, but no physical evidence to connect him to the murder. You know, they, they can't connect him to anything physical that would indicate that he had done it, so... Without any physical evidence to prove he's guilty, they have to release him. He committed suicide in 1991 at the age of 44. So there was a domestic dispute between him and his wife, and he attempted to shoot and kill her and his brother-in-law. Fortunately, they both survived, but after that event, he committed suicide. Our next suspect is Dennis Termini, which... I realized when I was doing my notes, I kept misspelling his name to Tremony, which almost seems fitting. But anyway, Termony was a 25-year-old firefighter at the time of the murders. Termony was known as a prolific offender called, quote, the garage rapist. Yeah, that's a weird name to give somebody. And I'm sorry, but I wouldn't want a nickname that fits a really bad stigma on myself as a character. Like, the garage rapist? Why would you want to do it in the garage anyway? That sounds... This, I don't know. disgusting in there, you know? I don't know. So he was a prolific offender. He committed 14 counts of rape towards teenage girls and young women between... 1971 to 1973, which was the same time frame as the murders, Termini was also known to have driven a beige car similar in description to two of the abductions. So Wanda's and Michelle's were both seen or last seen alive getting into or forcefully getting into a beige tan car similar to the one Termini had. 
In January 1st, 1974, it was reported that Termini tried to abduct a teenage girl at gunpoint, but fled the scene when the girl wouldn't stop screaming. Which, I think that's the best line of defense for women. Like, when you're being abducted, scream as loud as you possibly can, because somebody's gotta be able to hear you. And honestly, I think the, the shrill loudness of your voice scares the shit out of your perpetrators and they will just fucking run mm. i know i'm a person who hates loud noises and i always remove myself from situations in cases like that shortly after this attempt though he tried to kidnap another girl however this time he was followed by police and once he realized before they can apprehend him he committed suicide mm. Forensic search Termini's vehicle, and they did find white cat hair in the upholstery. Unfortunately, though, they didn't really have anything else to really connect him to the murders. And in 2007, Termini's body was actually exhumed to compare DNA evidence found on Wanda's body. Unfortunately, it did not match. Hmm. Which, I mean, that makes me really sad. Because Termini seems like the kind of guy... Based on what I just read, I, I would have pinned him to it. It would have been like, there, there's your guy right there. Beige car. Like, serial. But it didn't turn out that serial way. Serial rapist. Like, come on. I know, but it didn't turn out that way. Come on. I, I, it's not me. Plus, plus, he's a firefighter. I mean, if. But I feel like if you're going to try to lure girls of a certain impressionable age group into your vehicle, the most interesting way to go to go about it is to either have a pet of some kind like a cat or just say you know i'm a firefighter if you want to come back to the station and then you know take you for a ride in the truck like what kid would want to do that i mean don't ever get into cars with people that you don't know i don't care if they claim to be a cop or a fireman or whatever don't fucking do it but anyway moving on next suspect kenneth bianchi or Bianchi. I can't... I, Bianchi. Kevin Bianchi? That's yeah. how you pronounce it? Mm-hmm. Kenneth Bianchi, who is also known as one of the two Hillside Stranglers, was a ice cream vendor at the time of the murders. His work location was close to the first two crime scenes. It makes sense. And in January 1976, Bianchi and his cousin Angelo Buono Jr., moved to L.A. where they would go on to murder 10 young girls and women in the Hillside Strangler case from 1977 to 1978. Although Pianchi was never charged with the alphabet murders, he denied having any involvement with the case. While in Rochester, though, he was known to have driven a beige tan car. I feel like this one is reaching a bit. Mm-hmm. Would you say so? Yeah. I definitely feel like this one is reaching because it's like, honestly, aside from this case, Kenneth Bianchi, and another case we're going to talk about in the next episode, we don't really have a whole lot of serial killer cases. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I feel like when a person who has some sort of connection to your hometown or something may have a possible connection to another case you're solving, I mean, it, this is like reaching. Because honestly, this is just a theory based on what other people have speculated. 
but I'm, I'm going to move on. Our last suspect on the list is Joseph Nasso. Now, Nasso, in April of 2011, 77-year-old Joseph Nasso was arrested in Reno, Nevada for the murders of four women in California between 1977 and 1994. These were all sex workers. Most of them had double initials. Mm-hmm. Nasso is a New York native who lived in Rochester in the early 1970s. Nasso was initially a person of interest in the alphabet murders, but DNA testing ruled him out as they did not match the semen samples found from Wanda's body. It's still an unsolved case. There's never been a formal arrest or any person of interest that's come up on the police radar. And this is still an open investigation. This is not closed or cold cased or whatever. This is still ongoing, which I'm very surprised. Because a lot of cases that last like 20 plus years often get shelved as like a cold case. And they never get touched again until, like, new evidence comes forward. Hmm. Which could take months or years. So Hmm. I'm very surprised that the Rochester Police Department has kept this case open for so long. Useless. Hmm. What do you mean useless? This is important. I know, but it's just like, they take so long to try to find this person and just... Because there's no evidence. But uh, let me get into, like, the aftermath of this. And you'll see, like where they're going in this direction. Hang on one second. Okay. So in 1995, I'm going to butcher the name, and I'm sorry if I do, Guillermina Colon, who is Carmen's mother, made a public statement regarding her daughter's case in an interview with Democrat and Chronicle reporter Jack Jones. I'm Aaliyah Jones. I have no relation to Jack Jones. I'm not I mean, there's a million Jones. You don't have I know, to it's address very, this. It's a very common last name. Leave me alone. I know you don't anyway, have to address it. It's fine. No one cares. In, in 2009, the Democrat and Chronicle published a series of articles about the ongoing investigation of the alphabet murders. They encouraged the public to come forward for any information that may help close the case. Mm. This resulted in 20 new leads, all of which were reviewed, but none resulted in any arrests or convictions. Now, this is where it gets interesting. Because from what we know from certain cases where it covers more than one jurisdiction, they never get along with each other. And this is why most cases, including the Zodiac Killer case, never gets closed. Because jurisdictions have a hard time sharing like evidence with one another. Because they want to be the ones to solve the case. So they're like, oh, I'm not going to give you what I know if you're not going to give me what you know. And it's just a whole thing. But the state police, Rochester Police Department, Monroe, and Wayne County Sheriff's Office, they still have their files on this open and they regularly meet to discuss new leads. Which is very impressive. Mm -hmm. Like I said, jurisdictions never do that. So I have to commend them for that. Officials have also maintained a database with information on the suspects they've identified over the years. And every time a new person comes across their database, they always cross-reference like any any fingerprints or DNA that they get in their database. They try to match it with samples to see if there's a match. Mm -hmm. So they're constantly looking. It's not like they haven't stopped. Mm. They just haven't found that one match yet. Mm, Okay. You know, like I said, it's a sad case, but it is also one that was adapted into the movie, into a movie, I think, in like 2007? 2008. 2008. Which is aptly titled The Alphabet Killer. It stars a lot of famous people in that movie. 
it doesn't really go that much further into the case. It mostly showcases, like, this one detective character who goes through, like, a few psychiatric breakdowns mm-hmm. and has a connection, like, has an involvement in this case. And I can't for the life of me remember all the other actors and actresses' names. I only know that Timothy um, Hutton is in it. Timothy Hutton, Michael Ironsides in it, Elizabeth Dishku or something. Dishku. Oh, she, she was in a bunch of she was in a bunch of teenage uh, teen movies back in like the nineties and two thousand. Dishku. I at least I try. I at least I wing it. But anyway, well, it you make matter. fun of me for getting names. Oh, wrong. Carrie Wells is in it from the Princess Bride, Stranger Things, uh, just a lot of famous movies he's been in, and he's in the Alphabet Killer as well, which I thought that was super cool. Because I'm was, a huge Carrie Wells fan. It was also written, produced, and sort of starred by Tom Malloy. Well, he was a co-star. Yeah, Tom Malloy, who is a um, a local resident here, who's an actor. Which is really cool accomplishment for a, for a local actor here to hit hit somewhat big. From what I read in like the making of this movie, he actually talked to the original investigators from that case who were there, mm-hmm. and a lot of people like. Here's the thing, and this is what I also learned. You know, as as the years have gone on, this investigators who work on the cases when they retire or step down, they have to pass on all of their files and their know-how to the next detectives or investigators who take over for them. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, you guys need to stay on top of these and make sure you're checking that database because in case a match comes up, we gotta nail them. Like, this is, this is like, what, almost 40 years unsolved? Uh, like, well, since the happened in the 70s, like 1970, stuff like that, it's been 50. Oh, shit, wow. Yeah, we're in our 50th year since from so 1970 took- to now. 1971. That's all right. So 81, 49. 91. 49 years, son. 49. Yeah. Next year will be a 50 year anniversary that it's been unsolved. Exactly. My God. I know, and it's right? crazy. Like I'm I good said, with my math. It's just something that you gotta take seriously, you know? Because like I said, this is a very grim case. It's a very scary case, and it's one that really changed the way that people lived in this city from then on. People are more concerned about their children's whereabouts. You know, they're more cautious about making sure their children don't travel alone places. Like, that's fine. I mean, it's the way it happened shouldn't have happened. But unfortunately, that is the sad truth of it is that there are some sick people out there who will do whatever they feel like they want to do to hurt young children. And it's just not okay. It's one of the many, many reasons, like I've mentioned before, why I do not want to have children. I feel like as a parent, I would not be able to comprehend that much pain. So, yeah. I'm going to end that on a sad note. Colin, is there anything you wanted to wrap up before we sign off with? Um, well, not exactly, but I hope everyone enjoyed this little segment that we had. Mm-hmm. Which I do enjoy myself. And um, we will have more of this stuff in during our spooky season. I think I think the takeaway from this is if you see something that you know is not right, say something. Report it, please. That, and if, don't if go into the car of strangers as well. Yeah, if you're a kid or even an adult, don't get into a random car. Like, I know we have Uber and Lyft, but if 
if it doesn't feel right to you, don't do it. It's not worth it. You know, like your life is more precious than just, you know, don't do it. Be cautious out there, please. I don't know what the next episode is going to be in store for us, but I know the next time I do cover a Rochester case, we will be talking about Arthur Shawcross, a.k.a. the Genesee River Killer. Mm -hmm. And this guy is a fucking mess. Class a-hole. Like, that's the only word I can describe him. He is a fucking a-hole. What an a-hole. Fucking a-hole. I don't like him. Mm-hmm. I don't like him either. There's <laughs> there's one thing about him in my research that already puts me off about him. is how he overly exaggerates certain truths with his life experiences. Which we will get to pro- possibly in the next episode. So, on that note, make sure you follow us on Facebook, on the Abby Normal podcast group. If you haven't already, follow us on tri- Twitter at the Abby Normal Podcast. Anything you want to share, Colin, before we sign off? Uh, not really. All right. Keep your eyes open for the um, post for the the post for the fuck. Come on, you could say it. Say it with your mouth. This thing. What's this thing right here? That's a that's a skeleton head sculpture. For the live stream arts and crafts project. We're gonna be painting shit. Fucking it. That's all you had to say. Painting. It's late. Mm. It's like nine oh four at night. Yeah. I'm tired. God let's dang. let's wrap this up. Yeah. Whose fault is that? Anyway. So this has been a excellent episode of the Abbey Normal Podcast. I am your host, Colin. And I'm Aaliyah. Signing off same, don't go into that car. <laughs>